So this morning, um, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist one more time and how he was called to prepare hearts. That was his mission. That was his ministry. That's what he was called to do. And hopefully, you'll see that there are similarities with, with his calling and ours. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you. Um, we rejoice that you created it for us. That you've given us another day to, to just be blessed by you, Lord, to bless others. Lord, so now as we continue with this heart of worship, we sit at your feet to hear from you, Lord. Clear our minds from all distractions, Lord. Give us a spirit of peace. Give us a spirit of understanding, Lord. Open our minds, open our hearts. We want to hear from you, Lord. Some of us are right in that place where we're desperately wanting to hear from you, Lord. So speak to them plainly. Speak to them mightily, Lord, whether it's a word, a passage, a verse in, in, in your word, or whether it's something said in this, throughout this message. Lord, we are expecting to hear from you this morning. Fill this place with your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, the Word of God says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went to all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough way smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. I'm going to stop there for a minute and break down here what we just finished reading. Now, Luke begins this chapter by telling us, um, by letting us know who some of the historical figures were that Jesus and John faced during their ministries. These were actual figures. You can look them up in um, historical records. These people actually existed. Now, historians um, believe that the year may have been somewhere between AD 26 
and AD 29. The, in the first two verses, it, he named seven different men, including a Roman emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, which were rulers over a fourth part of an area, and two Jewish high priests. Now we'll soon see the, that the opposition Jesus faced throughout his ministry came from most of these governmental leaders. And now as their names are mentioned throughout this gospel, I'll try and share some more information or some more background information about them. And we're also going to see the two high priests mentions, mentioned here, Annas and Caiaphas, as religious adversaries of Jesus. But it's important to point out a couple things here. First of all, the fact that there were two high priests in Israel indicate the kind of religious disorder the nation was in. They were only supposed to have one high priest. And secondly, this also indicates that holding on to that power for the priests to want to hold on to that, the fact that there was two of them was more, it tells you, we ought to tell you that it was more valuable to them to hold on to that power than it was to serving God. So even though the world may have considered these men the great political and religious leaders of the day, in reality, they were anything but that. In God's eyes, they were just as wicked and corrupt as everyone else. So after 400 years of silence, what did God decide to do? He decided to bypass the palace and the synagogue to speak to his people once again through a humble Jewish prophet. In verse 3 and in the beginning of verse 4, Luke tells us who it was, what he did, and how he went about delivering that message. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now back in chapter 1, we covered his origins, so I really won't get into all the details again uh, about his origins, but it should have been clear that God set him apart for this work even before he was born. I will add, though, that besides living in the wilderness, Matthew 3, 4 tells us that John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So not only did he live in the wilderness, but he looked like he lived in the wilderness. He was definitely someone that would stand out, someone that would be easily recognizable. So what was it that he did? Well, we're told that he went to the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He traveled throughout that whole Jordan River area, delivering a simple but haunting message to the entire nation of Israel. Be baptized. Yet, this message, his message of baptism, had a much more deeper meaning than just being dunked in a river. It was a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he was calling on people 
to cleanse their souls in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. The only way this could be done was by admitting their sins against God, against other people, and then turning from those actions and attitudes. And that is the definition of repentance. So he called to those who sincerely repented to be baptized in water as an outward sign of that inward change, that they were really sincere, that they really felt repentant for the things they'd done and wanted that forgiveness. Now, for many religious Jews, this would have really sounded strange to them since they were under the impression that they had a, a baptism had a, pretty much already taken place. See, centuries before, the people of Israel went through a national baptism when they crossed that same river, the Jordan, to claim their promised land. They didn't understand that God was now summoning them to turn from this sin, from their sin, and enter his spiritual kingdom. Luke then tells us how and why he came the way he did, as it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now here, that verse tells us that the following, told, tells us that um, the following prophecy was taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. This was done to show us again that John's ministry was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now to begin with, he was a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. As a nation at that time, Israel was arid and cheerless, bringing forth no fruit for God. In order to be ready for the coming of the Lord, the people had to go a moral change, a moral transform transformation. When a king was going to make a royal visit in those days, elaborate preparations were made to smooth the highways, to make his approach direct, as direct as possible. If there were rocks, big rocks, small rocks, we wouldn't want the king to step down and trip off one of those rocks. If there was um, any obstacles there, they would remove them so that, again, maybe the horses wouldn't get hurt. This is essentially what God called, what John called upon the people to do. Only it wasn't a matter of repairing little roads, but preparing their own hearts to receive him. You see, with all the corruption that was coming from the religious leaders, the people, they desperately, so desperately needed to hear a voice, a message from God. And John was that faithful voice. So his task was to prepare the nation for the Messiah and then present him to them by rebuking their sins and announcing God's salvation. You see, he, he understood this very important point. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. 
What we, say, what we then see in verse 5 is a description of the effects Christ's, Christ's arrival will have. Every valley will be filled. And this implies those who are truly repentant and humble will, would be saved and satisfied. Every mountain and hill will be made low. People like the scribes and the Pharisees who are haughty, prideful, arrogant, would be humbled. The crooked will become straight. Those who are dishonest, like the tax collectors, would have their characters straightened out. The rough ways, the rough ways smooth. Soldiers and others with a rough, crude temperaments. You know, those, those men that you see that just lose their cool, everything, they just are hardened and they, they just don't care and they will speak their minds, that their temperaments would be tamed and refined. Lastly, in verse 6, we're given a description of this prophecy's final fulfillment. And everyone will see the salvation of God. When the Lord comes back to reign, the remnant of Israel will be saved, and the Gentiles will, will also share in the blessings of his glorious kingdom. Now, I want to share with you some other important lessons that I see here, just in the first six verses that we can learn from. Lesson one, when God calls you, expect difficult conditions. When he's ready to use you and calls upon you to do his work, will you say, you know what, Lord, not now. I will when there's not so much opposition. I will when this, our particular government will, you know, changes and it becomes better or when, you know, when there isn't so much persecution, when things look easier, that's when I'll be ready. But not now. It's, it's too hard. Now, I don't know about you, but as I see stories, story after story here in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, I don't see a single time where the Lord called people to fulfill his purpose in a perfect and ideal political, religious, and social climate. It was hard. They were, they were dealing with some very difficult times. Politically, it was things weren't going their way. They were being persecuted. Religiously, things were a mess. And socially, they were all a mess too. They, a lot of times they were, the, the people were idolatrous. They were doing their own thing, worship, you know, worshiping other gods, um, sacrificing to other gods, completely rebellious. The point is this. God will call you in difficult conditions because that's 
when he'll use you and work through you the most. That's when he will do some great and wonderful, amazing things through you when those conditions are the hardest. When you're completely dependent on him, when you rely on him for strength and comfort during those difficult times, he will use you. He will use you and, and you're going to start noticing great things happen. When you, when you step out, when he calls you and says, you know what, my, my son, you know what, my daughter, now's the time. As difficult as it seems and, and as, as, as gray or as dark as the world looks, trust in him. Trust in him that he's calling you to step out and do it, and he's going to be with you. He's going to be with you the entire way if you just keep your eyes on him. However, if you decide to say, you know what? Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to do it right now. I'm, I'm good. I'll wait till things get easier. I'll wait till life gets easier. I'll wait until I, get, I retire. I'll wait until I get a job. I'll wait until I get a family. I'll wait until um, when life seems a little, bit, little less hectic. God will still fulfill his purpose. He's still, what his will and his purpose will be, it, it's still going to happen. However, it'll happen without you. And you'll be missing out on the blessings, on the treasures that God has in store for you. And I don't know about you, but I want to feel that joy. I want to be blessed. I want him to just shower me with those blessings. Again, I hope you do too. Now, listen carefully to the word of, word of Mordecai in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And if you read that story, something similar here. He was telling Esther what would happen if she didn't fulfill God's purpose. Now, he, he says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14 of Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to, to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. This is why you're here. Lesson two. Regardless of where you're at, God will fulfill his plan through you. Even before you were born, God has a plan for your life. God is essentially saying, hey, you, again, son, daughter, I have this plan for you, and I will reveal it to you at the appropriate time, at the appropriate place, if you just continue walking with me, if you trust me. Yes, you can go off and do, make your own plans and live your life with or without me, but if you're with me, you will be blessed, 
that wherever you're at, I'm going to have you there for a reason, and I'm going to fulfill my plan through you. Let me, let me give you an example here. When, when God told John's parents who he'd become, did he tell them to take him to the wilderness? Did he tell them, you know what, take him out there, raise him out there in the wilderness, feed him, and make sure he's wearing nothing but camel's hair, a leather belt, and feed him nothing but locusts and honey? Yeah, I don't see that um, anywhere in this passage. That was a choice that they made. They consciously made a decision, hey, you know what, we're going to move ourselves out there. And also, when John got older, he also made the conscience, conscious decision, decision to stay out there. We're not specifically told that that's where God told him to live out his life. So regardless of where he grew or wh- where he grew up or where he lived, God would, will still or still would have brought John out to the wilderness to fulfill the words of Isaiah of being the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. It was going to happen. That was his plan. So what I'm saying, and I hope you understand whether he would have grew up in a, a good neighborhood, bad neighborhood, in the, in the rich or poor neighborhood, if he would have grew up in a, in a palace or, or in the slums or, yeah, even in the wilderness, he still would have fulfilled God's Plan. He still would have fulfilled that prophecy. He would have had him, he would have led him to the desert. And remember, this reminds me again of the Holy Spirit was the one who led Simeon and Anna to the temple that day in order to be blessed by baby Jesus. So the Spirit, I totally believe the Spirit would have led him to the desert to fulfill that prophecy. But in any case, his parents, he decided, we're just going to live here. So do you see where I'm going? If you're walking closely with the Lord and are in his will, God will also have each and every one of you exactly where he needs you when he calls you. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A person's heart plans his way. Listen carefully. But the Lord determines his steps. The Lord determines his steps. So once again, whether if... Let me give you an example. I knew that the Lord was calling me to plant a church, to, to lead a church, to, to pastor a, a church. I just wasn't sure where. I wasn't sure. I really wasn't thinking El Paso. I was looking on the maps for, you know, other places in the United States or even around the world. I, I remember even having discussions with, with Robin, as she can tell you, of going to, to Eastern Europe, to the country of Georgia. And I was like, well, they need churches over there. You know, that was just, that has always been my heart, just to go out and, and preach. You know, I thought to myself, well, there's, 
it's a lot of calories out here and you know Paso and do they really need another one I Lord I maybe you're calling me to uh, somewhere else to plant you know Calvary somewhere else where where one is needed so I did my research I did I looked at the maps and I called around I prayed um, I would pick a place and I would pray for it for the day and and I even made an attempt to to make several a couple, a couple attempts to to be transferred back to even Southern California well he closed the doors quickly and he and he showed me the Lord showed me yeah that's that's not part of the plan and little by little he began to show me opening started showing me and and opening doors and and revealing that this is where he wanted me so I was like okay Lord that you will be done if this is where you want me then then I'll be here and I'll serve I'll serve you faithfully I'll serve you obediently and now had it not been for that I wouldn't have met all these wonderful I wouldn't have met Isaac I wouldn't have met everybody here I wouldn't have you know I you know and I've been blessed tremendously I've been seeing his blessings so God will use you exactly where you're at if that's his will and if it's his will to, to for you just to start a ministry or be part of a ministry somewhere else he will lead you and guide you until he has you there now lesson three and this should be obvious here again without repentance there can be no forgiveness of sins let me ask a question how can you be forgiven of something you don't feel sorry about if I stole from you How can you forgive me if I, of, of, of something if I don't even feel bad for stealing it from you? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. You need that repentance. You need, I would come to you and say, you, you know what? I'm sorry I stole this from you. My heart is broken. I'm, I feel convicted. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it would be up to you whether you want to forgive or not. The Bible tells us that we should forgive those who have trespassed against us, who have wronged us. But the Lord sees my repentant heart. And He, when I come to Him with a, that repentant heart, with that broken heart, He forgives like when your child if you guys have had child children they've done something wrong and they come to you you don't even know what it is that and they come to you crying and I'm sorry I messed up I broke this or I did that and and that you can see that they really feel bad about it do you say you know what yeah no that isn't sincere like you can tell you usually can tell whether uh, an apology is sincere or not. So again, 
God will forgive you if you have a sincere heart of repentance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. If your sins don't break you, then it's time to check your heart. It's time to do a serious examination. If you're offending your spouse, if you're offending your wife, your husband, if you're mistreating your children and there's no conviction, there's no brokenness within you about that sin, then you need to check your heart. You need to see what's really going on. Why don't you feel that way? Now, there could be a couple reasons. Either you're not really, the Holy Spirit isn't really in you and is unable, and without the Holy Spirit, you really can't feel that conviction. You would feel bad for what, you may feel bad for what you did, but conviction is differently than just feeling bad about what you've done. Regret. It's not the same thing. Or you just are being stubborn, being hard-headed, being prideful. No, well, they did me wrong, and so I needed to do them wrong. You know, it doesn't work like that. This isn't like you, you stab me, so I'm going to stab you back. It's not what it's... It's not what God has called us to do. When we've done something wrong, it should break us inside. We should feel that stab in our heart, that weight. You know, sometimes I, I, I joke around with my kids or I'll joke around with my wife and something that may be a joke to me, they may take serious. And I can usually tell by the expression in their face, on their face that they didn't take it lightly. And it hurts. And I have to go and apologize. I even have, there have been even times I've had to apologize to my 10-year-old daughter. Honey, I know that hurt you. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? She's like, yeah, Daddy, I do. So not only am I showing her what that looks like, but she's seeing that for herself. So as an example that I'm setting the example for her so that she learns that it's important to ask for forgiveness. Again, if your sins don't break you, then it's time to check your heart. So now that we've taken a quick look into John's ministry and how it was a fulfillment of prophecy, we can now move on to the details of his message. So let's go back to our passage and pick up in verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, 
brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is ready at the root of the tree of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then shall we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. Verse 14, some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. John knew that the crowds who came out to be baptized by him weren't all being sincere. They didn't have, they weren't truly broken. They truly, they were doing it for other reasons. So he had to be direct and blunt with them. He didn't sugarcoat things. He just said it as he saw it. But again, in a fruitful, godly way, he never lost, he never lost his, his cool. I never see that again in, in, in scripture here in, in the stories of John. Now, yes, some were mere pretenders with no hunger or thirst for righteousness. And John was able to see right through them and pointed out their insincerity and self-righteous motives by calling them a brood. You guys know what a brood is? It's a family. It's like a little family of, 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 of vipers. A brood of vipers. See, what he really wanted, what they really wanted, was one more credential behind their name. One more religious act they could brag about. Yeah, I went over there to the river where John was, and I got my baptism card. Want to see it? Oh, look. Look at all these cards that I have. I'm covered. I'm good. It was just another, another thing for them. In reality, these weren't saints, but rather poisonous snakes. His question, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, implies that it wasn't him. He wasn't warning them. His message wasn't one of flee from the coming wrath. John's message wasn't a baptism for salvation. His message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So like snakes who slithered out of the grass because a fire is coming, 
They were coming out to be baptized, to just check it off their list of religious acts of salvation. How, how do you know you're saved? Well, I did this, this, this. And, and guess what? I just got baptized by John the Baptist at the river. So I've got all my bases covered. I think I'm good. I think I'm saved. Does that... I think that reminds us of, a, a, or we can think of a lot of people that are religious. Or a lot of religions that say you've got to do all these things in order to be saved. But what does the Bible tell us? That we're saved by grace, not by works. So that no one should boast. Now he goes on to tell them, that if they were sincerely honest with God, their repentance would be manifested by a truly transformed heart, a transformed heart, a transformed life that produces fruit. Just because they were Jews, just because they were descendants of Abraham, it didn't make them godly. See, God isn't limited to just using them, to using the Jewish people to carry out his purposes. He tells them, if you wanted to, if God really wanted to, he could take stones and raise up children for Abraham. Now, it may be possible that the stones here are a picture of Gentiles whom God would transform by a miracle of divine grace into believers with a faith like Abraham's. It makes sense because this is exactly what happened when, men, when many Gentiles, when you and I as Gentiles received Jesus as Lord and Savior and became the spiritual seed of Abraham. By saying in verse 9 that the acts is already at the foot of the, of the tree, he was figuratively telling them that God is already at work. And when the Messiah reveals himself, he would test the reality, the genuineness of a person's uh, faith by the spiritual fruit they produce. Those, like any other, tr like a tree that doesn't produce fruit, those who produce none would be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you have an orange tree or an apple tree or a watermelon tree in your backyard, that was, that was a joke, not a watermelon tree. <laughs> There's no watermelon trees. But um, if you had a, a tree back there that was made, was, you know, produced oranges or apples or whatever it may be, and it never produced any fruit, would you still keep it there? What's the point? You know, if I wanted a tree, I just would have gotten, I would have went to the nursery and gotten a tree. But I bought an apple tree to get apples. So if it's not producing apples, I cut it down and put it in my fireplace or make a fire pit outside. 
this would be useless. What he was saying is that those who, who per, again produced none would be cut down into the fire, while those who did would continue living, producing more fruit. Describing people as trees, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, a tree will be known by its fruit. In Jeremiah 17, 8, it says this about those who are fruitful. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease to producing fruit. So the question we should be constantly asking ourselves as believers is this. Are we fruitful or unfruitful trees? Are you producing fruit or are you being useless? That's a good question to ask. It's a, it could be a painful question. And just like I mentioned earlier about checking your heart, you, if you're not producing fruit, then you need to check yourself. You need to check your heart and, seeing, and ask yourself, what's, why not? What's going on? Why is this not happening? Now, now again, I'll, I'll explain to you again uh, what the fruits of the spirits are, how you can tell. But they would be obvious to you. It would be clear. Do you want to be that tree that just is useless and will just good for firewood? Or do you want to be that tree that's planted by water that whose foliage is always green and doesn't worry in drought or doesn't cease? In producing fruit. Me, I'd rather be the, the latter. And I hope you do too. Well, it appears that John's rebuke was, was too much for these reli- religious leaders, religious pretenders to understand. It just went over their head. They, John was just getting too theological here. He it, it was, it was, it was being, it's getting too deep with them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have asked, if they would have understood, they wouldn't have asked, what should we do? So, John, in the, as a good pe- teacher, as a good pastor, or as a good um, preacher, he put it in a way that even a simple child would understand. Verse 11 The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. In other words, go look at your clothes. Go look into your closet. Do you have a change of clothes? Take one and give it to a person who needs it. If you have way too much stuff and there's stuff in there that you don't use, at all that you don't like anymore, something you haven't worn in 10, 15 years that you know you'll never wear again. Why do you have it there? 
give it to someone who needs it. You know, go to someone, a homeless person downtown or wherever it may be, and just say, hey, I got these extra pair of shoes. I got this jacket. I got, right now that it's hot, hey, I, I got this tank top. I don't use it anymore. I don't even like this team anymore. So do you see what I'm saying, though, is, is John wanted them just to, you have extra stuff, just give it away. Give it to someone who needs it. Do you have a food supply for the day? Invite someone to share it with you. He was telling them not to be selfish, but to share their blessings, to share what God has given them to others, to love their neighbors as themselves. This is what genuine repentance looks like. It produces the fruit of compassion. Luke then tells us that the tax collectors and soldiers also came to be baptized and asked him the same question, what should we do? Now, tax collectors were despised. They were the most hated group by, I think, right next to the Romans, uh, the politicians. Um, They were despised by their fellow Jews because they worked for the Romans and were notoriously shrewd. They were notoriously crooked when they collected taxes. They were called publicans. So John taught them to be honest with their dealings and to stop their unjust practices, practices by collecting the exact amount of taxes that they were supposed to. Nothing more than they were supposed to collect in taxes. Be honest. Have integrity. Do the right thing when no one is looking. Someone gives you an extra dime or even an extra penny that they weren't supposed to just give it back. Hey, this isn't, this is too much. This is yours. Not only is it the right thing to do, but you may be blessing that person with that extra penny or that extra dime. Notice here that John never told them to quit their jobs, but again, to do their work honestly. To the Jewish soldiers serving in the Roman army, he taught them to avoid three sins common to men in the military at that time. Extortion, slander, and discontent. These Jewish soldiers would often use their authority and the fear of Rome to force people to give them money to supplement their wages. They felt like they were getting cheated by the the Roman government as soldiers. They weren't getting enough money. So they used their authority to rob people, to cheat people, to swindle people, to extort money from them by force if necessary just because they weren't happy with what they were earning. So repentance for them meant refusing the temptation to steal from others just because they had the power to do so. It also meant living on what they agreed to work for, whether that proved to be a living wage or not. If you signed a contract, if you made an agreement with your employer that this 
is what you're going to make. This is what I'm going to make. Stop complaining. Stop arguing that you're not making enough. You made that agreement. You're working there. You decided to work there. You know, you don't have to if you don't want to. Again, whether it's a living wage or not, be satisfied. The Lord will provide for you. Thus, again, according to John, repentance isn't just, isn't just confined to a person's religious duties, isn't just re- confined to how they privately practice repentance at home. John taught that repentance should enter the place where you work by fulfilling your duties in every way that reflects the life God approves of. See, regardless of how much power and authority you have or how much you can financially gain by exercising such authority, you don't have God's authority to use your power to get money. So like the prophets who preceded him, John called people to practice justice, to practice righteousness and mercy in every single area of their life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 give us the description of what the fruits of the Spirit look like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've been given some examples with the insincere religious people, with the tax collectors, with the soldiers. But they aren't just limited to those. The fruit, in your, in this, the fruit of the Spirit in your life will begin to look differently. Have you been a person that's been impatient? Have you just been a really impatient person your entire life? Well, the fruit of the Spirit will reveal itself in, in a way that now you're able to be more patient with people, more patient with being at the bank line or being at Walmart or wherever it may be, being at the airport, you know, just being patient if you never had that patience before. Um, gentleness. Have you been a crew, like a, a really mean person? Someone who just, you dealt, you used to deal with everybody harshly. You used to deal with your kids and your family, your wife, in a harsh way. A transformed heart, a repentant heart will begin to produce fruit that is gentle. You'll start to notice that gentleness in your own heart, in your own actions. Again, those are just some examples there. But I would suggest again, if you doubt, do am I producing fruits of the Spirit? Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, verses 22 and 23. And examine each one of those characteristics, each one of those fruits, and say, Am I? Ask yourself, am I producing fruit? If none of these apply to you, come to the Lord on your knees and ask Him to break your heart. We, we see here the beginnings of, of, of what John's ministry was about. He was called to prepare hearts. 
And as Christians, as believers, we're not called to, to save people. We're called, just like John, we're called to lead people to Christ, to the Messiah. And he's the one who saves. We're just called to prepare the heart, to plant the seed so that when they do come to the Lord, their hearts are a little more prepared to hear that message or to hear that, that God speak to them and, and, and for them to receive salvation. And if you're watching and listening and you've never received the Lord in your life and, and you, that seed has been planted and, and you feel the Lord calling you now to, to become his child, to be, you want to be saved and you want to know him more, you want to have a relationship with him and, and that's been eluding you that your entire life. You realize and you see that your heart, your heart is hard and that you are being that useless tree. You don't want to burn, be that tree that burns in fire. Today's the day. Today's the day that the Lord is calling you to be saved, to, to receive him come to him repentant of your sins come to him broken and he will forgive you he sent his son to die for you so come to him i'll lead you in a prayer to do that that's what you sincerely want to do so if that's you wherever you're at close your eyes and bow your head and Pray this, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I know that I've wronged you. I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm a sinner. I admit that. Forgive me. I believe that you brought your son to die for me. I confess his name. I confess that he is Lord and I believe that he is your son. I believe that God, that you raised him from the dead. So I lay all my sins upon him now on that cross, Lord. Wash me clean. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit. so that I may see and understand you more. So I will know when I've done wrong, so that I may feel that joy when you're blessing me. Thank you, Lord. I receive and accept your forgiveness. And I ask that you surround me with people who will guide me, who will help me to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.